Psalms are ancient hymns of Israel. Their compositions span centuries. Psalm 24 is an ancient hymn of praise to welcome the King of glory, the Lord, into his temple in Jerusalem. The Lord, mighty in battle. Here's what it sounds like. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. In Psalm 24, the lintels, the doorways to the city of Jerusalem and the temple there in the city need to grow higher because the king is entering his temple and human structures are just too small. The Feast of the Presentation, or Candlemas as it is known, because Jesus is the light of the world, is the fulfillment of ancient Judean prophecy. The prophet Ezekiel, in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity, said that God's glory had departed the temple, but a time was coming when his glory would return. Jesus taught in the temple precincts, and in Luke's gospel, Jesus would one day enter the temple to cleanse it by turning over the tables of the money changers. Just before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus prophesies that not a stone would be left upon a stone of the entire temple complex. That's, however, not today. Today, he comes to his temple cradled in his mother's arm. His mother and father are offering a gift of two turtle doves, for Mary's purification, 40 days following childbirth, as prescribed in the book of Leviticus. Jesus was born into a loving, observant, but poor family. They offer a turtle dove, the offering of someone who, according to Leviticus, cannot even afford a lamb. The turtle dove looks like our mourning dove, but just more colorful. You see, the glory of God returns to his temple in humility and the faith of his parents. But he's so little. The gates don't have to be very high for his glory to enter. So what is Psalm 24 really talking about? And that's the subject of today's gospel. This is Oral Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold. To understand the story of the feast of today, the presentation uh, or candlemas, you have to do some deep background. And the deep background is always the Old Testament. And our investigation, our inquiry into the Old Testament background behind this feast of the presentation of the Lord, we start with the first reading, which is from the prophet Malachi. You know, Malachi is always the easiest book in the Old Testament to find because it's the last book in the Old Testament. When you read the last page of Malachi and it's talking about the coming of the Lord, you just turn the page and you're into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the story of Jesus. And we've arranged the Bible like that because it makes very clear that Old Testament prophecy refers to Jesus. 
So when we're looking at Malachi chapter 3, which is where the first reading comes from, if you want to follow along, the very beginning of chapter 3, here's what the prophet Malachi says. Thus says the Lord God, Lo, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and suddenly there will come to the temple the Lord whom you seek and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. Yes, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who will endure the day of his coming? Well, that's a little bit of foreboding, isn't it? The Gospel of Luke follows Malachi, and it tells the story of the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary. We think of it as, as the first mystery, of the first joyous mystery, the Annunciation, and then the visitation, the nativity of the Lord. Uh, and then we get to the end of those joyous mysteries, and the fourth mystery is the presentation of the Lord. It's the what we know about Jesus' early life. You know, Scripture describes a God and his relationship with, with his people where God's people call out to him and God's respond. It's like mass, which is call and response. The Lord be with you and also with your spirit. There's always the interaction back and forth between his sinful people and God in the Old Testament. The Old Testament runs on God's goodness and human beings' sin. What St. Luke wants you to believe is that this king of glory, this mighty warrior, mighty in battle, as Psalm 24 tells us, comes to the temple, not as a conventional warrior, but as a baby cradled in his mom's arms. The gates and the lintels of the temple don't have to raise it all to let Jesus in. He's probably a, a foot long. He's not big. He comes, however, to make war, but humanity is not his enemy. But appearances are deceiving because you can think of size as being physical size or, and this is much more important, the sense of what transcendence is and what the glory of God truly is because it's the glory of God that is the concern of the Gospels. But why does Malachi prophesy that the Lord will return to his temple? Why is this a big deal at all? Well, we need to go back about 200 years before Malachi to the time of Ezekiel. And here's a little bit of background on the book of Ezekiel and Ezekiel as a prophet. So why is Ezekiel a big deal? He's one of the biggest prophets in the Old Testament. You know, he didn't prophesy in Jerusalem. He was, he was uh, exiled from Jerusalem in the first exile following King Jehoiakim off to Babylon, which is uh, modern-day Iraq. Ezekiel, like St. John the Baptist in the Gospel, is the son of a priest. Based on the information provided in the prophetic book of Ezekiel, he was probably born around the year 622 BC, 200 years more or less before Malachi in the fourth or fifth century BC. Ezekiel said that he turned 30 years of age about five years after Judas King Jehoiakim was exiled from Jerusalem. His prophecies were probably all delivered as he lived in exile 
on a canal or a river named Kabar in, in south of Babylon. His prophecies were gathered by other Judahites, uh, the men of the great assembly or the great synagogue, it was called. And then it was made into a book or a scroll that we now call Ezekiel because uh, that captivity of, of Israel in Babylon went on for about 70 years. None of the people really exiled from Jerusalem ever saw home again. They probably couldn't have lived that long. But the book of Ezekiel describes the destruction of Solomon's temple and the desolation of Judah and Jerusalem, which first occurred around 587 BC. The Babylonian captivity, there's a couple of phases to it because the, Jew, the Jewish people, the Judahites, were very hard-headed, and the Babylonians knew how to crack heads. Well, in, uh, in Ezekiel's vision of uh, the glory of God, uh, he talks about the glory of God departing the temple. Here's the vision that's recounted in chapter 10 of Ezekiel. Then I looked, and there above the firmament over the heads of the cherubim was something like a sapphire, something that looked like a throne. And he said to the man dressed in linen, Go within the wheelwork under the cherubim. Fill both your hands with burning coals from the place among the cherubim. Then scatter them over the city. As I watched, he entered. Now the cherubim were standing to the south of the temple when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner glory. The glory of the Lord had moved off the cherubim to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud the whole court brilliant with the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far as the outer court. It was like the voice of God Almighty speaking. You know, whenever the glory of the Lord is described in the Old Testament, for instance, in uh, the book of Exodus or in Second Kings, it's this cloud that descends on a mountain or when Solomon consecrates the temple Ezekiel's talking about, the cloud enters in and fills the temple. It's this mystery of God. But when Ezekiel describes his vision of God, that part in chapter 10, he also earlier in the book of Ezekiel, he describes the vision of God with fiery serpents, which he calls the seraphim, which according to Jewish tradition are the highest ranks of the angelic order. There are cherubim, one of whom puts live coals into the hands of this man that Ezekiel sees that's dressed all in linen. This man will appear again in the book of Daniel as the son of man. It looked as if a human hand moved among the cherubim, Ezekiel said, because there was something there that wasn't simply these fantastic creatures. There was something that a man, a human could connect with. But this is where it gets weird. There were wheels in the vision of God that moved inside each other, wheels within wheels. And the vision, this whole image of this divinity was covered with eyes that saw everything and everybody. But there were four faces. See, if you recognize these, a man, a cherub, a lion, and an eagle. Remember, in Catholic tradition, that's how we think of the four evangelists, a man, a cherub, a lion, and an eagle. Remember, St. Mark is the lion. And 
Ezekiel had seen them before, but not in the temple. He saw them by the river Kebar in Babylon because this vision of God was not limited to the territory of Israel. It moved wherever it chose because God goes where God wants to go. He is not limited is what Ezekiel is saying about God. And he followed, God followed Israel in the captivity. God doesn't leave his people. Like God was with the people in the desert. He's with them in captivity. He's with them in the diaspora. He's with them here in Oro Valley. God follows his people where his people go. Here's, however, how Ezekiel finishes up chapter 10. When the cherubim moved, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to rise from the earth, even then the wheels did not leave their sides. When they stood still, the wheels stood still. When they rose up, the wheels rose up with them, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. And then the glory of the Lord left the threshold of the temple and took its place upon the cherubim. So the glory of God abandons the temple in chapter 10 of Ezekiel. And it's thereafter that the Babylonians destroy it. And God is nestled amongst the cherubim. It's still how, if you remember Michelangelo's famous painting of God and Adam, there are these angels, the cherubim, supporting God in that picture. But do you remember what God promised Abraham way back in the book of Genesis? He promised Abraham that he would have a land that he would make of Abraham a great nation, and that Abraham will be a blessing on all people, on all the peoples of the nations. Not only that, but God promised to David that his house, his dynasty would endure forever. At least that's how David looked at it. God would return, according to Ezekiel, because God always keeps his promises. So in chapter 43 of Ezekiel, he describes a day that would come when the glory of the Lord would return to the temple. Then he led me to the gate facing east. This is the man. And there was the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the vision I had seen by the river Kebar. I fell on my face. The glory of the Lord entered the temple by the way of the gate facing east. Ezekiel chapter 43. By the way, this is the prophecy that the idea of the Messiah entering Jerusalem from the east, the Mount of Olives, this is where that prophecy comes from because the Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem. And if you remember on Palm Sunday, when we read the Passion of the Lord, it starts with Jesus entering Jerusalem. You got it from the Mount of Olives. So according to Malachi, who is writing 200 years or so after Ezekiel, what would it be like when the glory of God returned to the temple? Here's what Malachi said. But who will endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like the refiner's fire or like a fuller's lie. He will sit refining and purifying silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like gold or like silver, that they may offer due sacrifice to the Lord. It's Malachi chapter one. God wants to burn away all the corruption in human beings. He wants to make them like pure gold, which is incorruptible. 
In his purity, the baby Jesus refines us, calls us to humility, because God himself goes to the temple as but a child. Luke's gospel, interestingly, has both men and women involved in the fulfillment of prophecies. Perhaps the prophetess Anna seems like a surprise, but the Old Testament has other female prophets, or at least women that speak for God. Deborah, Jael, Esther, Judith, and Miriam are women who spoke and acted for God in salvation history. What's interesting about Anna, and perhaps why she's a prominent figure in the gospel at this point, is that she's a married woman, now a widow, who took up after her husband's death a life of radical asceticism, living in the temple and fasting and praying night and day. That was her entire life after her husband's death. She is like, I think, widows in our church who give so much to our parish. She was consecrated to prayer and fasting. And Anna's example is the root of the early Christian woman, women practice of a radical asceticism that Paul refers to in his Gospels because women really are at the root of uh, our whole experience of religious life. So Luke also speaks of Simeon and he says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, awaiting the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is a reference, by the way, to Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, the consolation of Israel. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If the first part of Simeon's prophecy is linked to past prophecies of Ezekiel, Isaiah, I'd say Jeremiah and Malachi, the second part of his prophecy points forward. So the prophet points to the past of Israel and to the forward towards the crucifixion. Because remember what he says about Mary. Luke chapter 2, verse 35. Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be contradicted. And you yourself, a sword will pierce, so the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, Mary's the part of the purification. Um, revealing, opening hearts. Simeon's prayer, by the way, is called the Nunc Dimittis. We say it as priests or religious every evening with night prayer. And Nunc Dimittis means now depart. Now your servant can depart. The first half of the prophecy is focused on consolation. The second half of the prophecy points forward to the crucifixion. And so what's at the heart of this whole story of the glory of the Lord? Let's talk about the purification of Mary. Did you know that one of the titles of the Virgin Mary is the Queen of Martyrs? Think about the story of Mary's purification and Mary being held up as the example, the exemplar of the Christian disciple. Because she's purified in two ways. In the first way, she simply complies with the book of Leviticus when she offers the sacrifice of two turtle doves. Why did she have to be purified? It's not because of sin. It's because in the Old Testament, the idea of blood is what made you uh, impure because blood belongs to God. But there's the second part 
of uh, Mary's purification that Simeon refers to, that her heart will be pierced so the thoughts of many can be revealed because Mary's discipleship will be tied in Luke's gospel to following her son. When Jesus says, you're not worthy to be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and follow me, mom's right there beside him all the way to the end. This is why Mary is seen as the exemplar of discipleship and all spirituality is fundamentally Marian spirituality. Luke emphasizes this coming crucifixion because in Luke's Gospels and Paul's theology, it's the crucifixion where the work of the Messiah is complete. Mary's gonna suffer right along with her son. Mary's martyrdom is exemplary. Well, why? Because we may not be crucified, hopefully not, but if we are, we are. But being faithful to God as trials come along is, like what Mary suffered, an interior mortification. This is not an easy time in life to be a Christian, especially a Catholic. And so to be faithful when it's not in season is about interior mortification. That's why we have to give ourselves to fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. And so what is God's glory? Is it just a cloud? God's glory. When do you witness the glory of God? When we pray and we hope for a miracle because someone we love has had something horrible happen to them and you want God to be there and pleased to make it go away? I mean, that would be awe-inspiring. Healings would be awe-inspiring. That's true, and God's glory is present there. But, you know, those are not everyday events. It's true walking on the sea or raising Lazarus from the dead or exercising demons is all pretty powerful stuff. But you know, people, Judas, for instance, saw these things and he didn't believe. But that's, I think, not what God's glory is fundamentally in the gospel. Here's what God's glory is. God's glory is Zacchaeus deciding that he would make restitution for every time he cheated someone. God's glory is not in curing the blind man, but that the blind man got up and followed Jesus all the way to the cross. God's glory is in Mary and Joseph who, in their humility, and was so little, still followed faithfully. For them, God's glory is when Jesus made water into wine to help a poor man who couldn't afford the wedding feast he wanted to give to his friends. God's action in charity. You know, St. Irenaeus, who followed the evangelist by a hundred years or more, he said that the glory of God is the human person fully alive. Think about how we started out this podcast, Psalm 74. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. You know, wooden lentils don't magically get taller defying the limitations of God. Why would that be a great miracle? But if we are the temples of the glory of God, we don't have to grow larger physically to allow them in. But our hearts and minds, our souls have to grow. The word magnanimous, magna, great, anima, soul. Grace makes us great-souled because our minds open to see the reality of the goodness of God all around us. His grace helps us to transcend our limitations. Transcendence 
is like growing. Gates may not get bigger, but our hearts and minds can get a lot bigger. Transcendence is growing beyond the natural world that seems to call us only to fulfilling natural appetites, to giving us an, a hope, a faith, a trust in God's grace. That's what Christianity really offers, a grace-filled relationship with and in God. You know, we should all want to be better people. Christianity is not fundamentally about that. It's a good thing to want, and we should try to live good moral lives because it opens us to God's grace. But to be a saint is to go only where faith and God's grace can lead us. Remember the crucifixion? The good and the bad thief. I mean, that guy didn't live a great life. But at the end, it was God's grace that took him into paradise. That's the message of the gospel. The gospel's about the glory of God made present in the redemption of sinners. The people of Israel failed, as do we, when we mistake the pleasure of physical things for the glory that only God's good favor and his grace could bestow on us. The human heart is made for a reality and a glory that transcends this world, but is made present now in the life of grace in small and hidden ways. Salvation isn't something that will happen to us. It happens for us now when we invite the King of glory in. It's not about the future. It's about what we do today. So lift up the lintels of your hearts high. Open wide the gates to your innermost thought. Let the King of glory in.